to Bookish at Bethel. I am Anne-Marie Koyster in the History Department. I'm joined by... Carrie Peffley in the Philosophy Department. We're going to be talking this week about the Federalist and Anti-Federalist debates. And Carrie, just as a way of introduction, given that this is a recording during the COVID-19 crisis, what are you streaming for fun these days? Well, I have been streaming Netflix, uh, Grace and Frankie with Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. It's heartwarming and hilarious. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> My family has been watching on Acorn TV, a series called Lords and Ladles. And so three cooks go and uh, cook a old timey meal. Sometimes it's an 18th century uh, menu. Sometimes it's a early 20th century menu at one of these estates. And so somebody cooks the meal, somebody gathers the weird materials for the meal, and somebody researches the history of the estate. So that would be my recommended um, guilty pleasure maybe during COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, stay tuned, listeners, for the next 25 minutes or so, and uh, you'll hear a little bit more about the Feds and Anti-Federalists. Anne-Marie, this week we're going to be reading the Feds and Anti-Feds. Uh, could you give us a synopsis of what we're reading? Like, what do the Feds say? What do the Anti-Feds say? What's this debate all about? Well, that is a great question, and students will probably find this week's reading fairly challenging because uh, people in the 1780s do not write like we write today, and so words like celerity are going to come up, and uh, <laughs> you might actually have to look up some of the, the words, uh, but uh, it is a conversation really uh, happening in the 1780s. The folks who have fought the American Revolution had put together the Articles of Confederation, which had created a very weak national government on purpose. That's important to note. It was on purpose. Right. But that didn't work out so well. And so there were delegates who had put together um, this brand new constitution. And that was a concern for lots of folks who kind of liked uh, having the power more at the state level. And so the conversation is going to take place between anti-federalists. These are the folks who really oppose ratification of the constitution because they fear the power of a centralized national government. And then the federalists who are going to take those objections and kind of one by one in a series of essays explain the features of the Constitution and defend the Constitution and make ratification actually seem like it's a good idea. Interesting. Yeah. What do you think that the um, Federalists, Anti-Federalists are about? Well, I, yeah, I would say this, the same thing. I, I tend to focus a little bit more. And to be honest, it's been four years since I've read this. So this will be fun to come back to this text. Um, really a question of whether or not you want a strong central government um, and how how strong that central government should be with the anti-feds um, being very, very concerned about that central government being too strong, about 
the president becoming a monarch, um, you know, all, all of these sorts of, of concerns that the anti-feds have versus the, the, Fed, the federalists who are much more concerned about, well, if you don't have a strong central government, how do you have a cohesive union? How, how does that even make sense as a country if each state yeah. is doing it? And you thing? get lots of folks saying things like from the federalist side, if you're going to have your liberty, you need security in order to have that liberty actually function effectively, which I always find very interesting because I feel like they've just read in Edmund Burke something very similar, like it's great to be pro-liberty, but if you don't actually consider the context in which that liberty is occurring, uh, you know, your liberty might be compromised. So I always appreciate the fact that there are some very clear tie-ins to the Edmund Burke, Thomas Paine conversation that they would have theoretically just read. Absolutely. And I don't know that because we don't read John Locke in this program oh. and these ideas of, of libertarian freedom are, are floating around at the time that the question of what real liberty is and the dangers of a complete uninhibited liberty um, are, are certainly concerns that our thinkers are thinking about that maybe our students aren't thinking about as much. Right. And I think the other thing that students will be potentially surprised by as they're reading, particularly the Federalists and how they're defending the Constitution is the Federalists are basically very concerned about the power of the people. Uh, you've got uh, Jimmy Madison uh, <laughs> suggesting that, in fact, the people are not actually capable of virtue and are acting according to selfish interests and factions will occur as people act according to those self-interests. Right. And so I think that will be something that students will be sort of intrigued by that um, Jimmy Madison is going to keep saying things like, well, we need to really protect the government from the people and particularly the legislative arm of the government, because that's where you see the power of the people in most um, display. So, right. Yeah. So it's, I think that's fascinating that there was a time in our nation's history where the legislative arm of the national government was theoretically the arm with the most power. And it was a cause con for concern for someone like James Madison. Um, so Carrie, what else do you like to talk about when you talk about the Federalists? And and I realize it's been four years, and so it, it might be a little bit yeah. rusty. No, my, my recollection, you know, obviously there are some really amazing connections to what we've just discussed in, in Burke and Payne, um, and this question about how much should be changed, speed of change, questions of liberty. Um, but then this, this idea that you just brought up about um, whether or not people are capable of virtue, whether people are basically good or not, connects really <laughs> nicely back to um, Luther and Erasmus right. and some of the theologians that we have, we have been discussing. So I, I find it really cool to connect these thinkers back to not just other Enlightenment political thinkers, but conversations that have been going on for a really long time about you know, are humans basically good or basically bad? And then how do we apply that to a good government? What does it look like to have a government if you feel like, oh, people are kind of foolish and they're going to do stupid things? Okay, right. so how do we respond to that? 
Yeah, and I think that's part of the reason why of all the Federalist essays that we have students read, Federalist 10 is maybe the most important one for students to read. It's, I think, the most famous, as I just said. And in that one, I think you really hear James Madison coming to a more pragmatic rather than an idealistic uh, position with regard to virtue. And he's basically saying that um, citizens and others are not going to be able to do this, act out of their um, out of the public goods interest. And so the best way to do this is to create a government system where um, we have a separation of powers and a checks and balances. Right. Yeah. So I Jimmy guess I was smart. I'm going to call him Jimmy. From now on. Yeah, no, I, and in my uh, discussion forum, I, I talk about Alex and Jimmy. So imagine students that you're Alex or Jimmy and da 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 da. So I just feel like it humanizes them a little bit, you know, although I guess it does. Alex has been uh, humanized by way of a musical that a maker. apparently is yeah. very popular. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen that musical, Anne-Marie? I have not seen that musical. I'm not a, a huge fan of the um, late 20th century, early 21st century musicals. So I, I can't say I'm, I've seen it. Have you? Yes. No, no, I, I feel the same way. I'm, I generally don't like, I like the way you put it, late 20th century, early 21st century musical uh, <laughs> genre is not my, my main genre. Yeah. Give but I've heard good things rain, about it. Right? <laughs> oh. So, okay, do you, when, when we're talking about feds and anti-feds, do you point your students forward at all to the Civil War? Do I point them forward to the Civil War? Um, well, to some extent, I think you can. Um, the anti-federalists definitely had a particular vision for the united states which differed from the federalist vision for the united states the anti-federalists so people who again opposed ratification to the constitution they really saw that um, the development of the united states should be based on an agrarian economy and so in some ways a lot of the anti-federalists are some of the rising Southerners, although you've got to be careful with that because James Madison obviously was somebody who's very interested in the plantation economy and owned slaves and so on and so forth. So he's kind of a peculiar Federalist, but you definitely see the vision of Alexander Hamilton emerging as what becomes the predominant vision of the North. So this is again, one mm -hmm. where as opposed to having an agrarian based economy, it's one that's based on the development of merchant and manufacturing economy. Hamilton's also very um, overachieving in that he really wants to see the United States emerge as being a global powerhouse eventually, whereas for the um, folks who are anti-federalists, they're less concerned with the United States having a proud standing in world affairs say. so. You can see some translation of the debates about the nature of government uh, sort of pointing towards later developments in that Southerners, 
who end up seceding from the union probably have more of this anti-federalist skepticism of the national government, the strong national government, and would prefer to have more states' rights. And they will actually frame the debate with the Northerners in terms of, hey, this is a states' rights issue and we're trying to preserve our independence as states. And But that's also coming out of this um, larger issue too, though, of the economy and what kind of economy, which kind of goes back to the feds, anti-feds again, although that's not totally right. clear because James Madison, like I said, um, is sort of, sort of anomalous in this respect. What about right, you, right. What do you say on this topic? Um, well, again, I like sort of connecting. And I don't know whether just early American um, documents are on their own less interesting to me other than their connection to other things. That's why you're the Americanist on our team. Right. Um, but I do like thinking about this particular conversation of small versus big government, centralized versus states um, in terms of its connections, like I said, back to conceptions of virtue and then forward to um, later debates within the US governmental system. So the Civil War certainly pops out as one example of at least some conversation about state rights versus centralized government. I have been, though, doing a ton of thinking just because, so this is our first podcast um, where we're doing this from home because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And Minnesota is going under a shelter-in-place um, order as of tonight but other states aren't. And so as I'm reading feds, anti-feds, I'm sort of thinking about what, what would our authors say about this? Yeah, well, and I think that's a, such a great thing to think about because I don't think that there is any way that Alexander Hamilton, for example, who is probably much more in favor even than James Madison of a strong centralized government. I don't think there is any way that Hamilton could have foreseen the developments of even the 20th century in mm -hmm. terms of the strong executive power that we see developing dating back to um, even Teddy Roosevelt. And some people actually date it back to Abraham Lincoln, who has to be a much stronger executive because of the national crisis of the Civil War. Yeah. I don't think there is any way that Hamilton would have said, oh, yeah, this is what I was envisioning in terms of the national government's power. Like, especially this whole um, legislation that Congress is just discussing in terms of the economic stimulus package, like sure. this idea of Americans, every American getting a direct cash payment from the national government, the anti-federalists would have been horrified. Oh, yeah. Horrified. And I think even Alexander Hamilton would have been a little little horrified himself. So it is, it's very interesting to see like the unintended consequences of the kinds of things that the Federalist Anti-Federalists were setting into motion. Mm -hmm. I think one thing too that I, I should point out um, in case listeners are unfamiliar with this, uh, the Anti-Federalists obviously lose that debate because um, despite putting up maybe a, a valiant effort to oppose ratification, Obviously, um, the Constitution is ratified, but it's probably a closer battle than most people realize. 
But one of the really important uh, op, like uh, things that Anti-Federalists said about the Constitution was that the form that it existed in during ratification did not include a national bill of rights. Most of the states had formed their governments very quickly during the American Revolution. And at the state level, these state governments had a state bill of rights. The federal government didn't have this at the Articles of Confederation level, and then neither did it have it in the Constitution. And I think one important argument that the Anti-Federalists make is, if we're going to move toward a stronger national government, then certainly we need to provide, even at the national level, some kind of bill of rights in which we recognize the key rights that even at a national level, we all share. Right. And so one of the last Federalist essays that students will read is you've got Alexander Hamilton um, trying to make the argument that actually, no, we don't need a, a bill of rights in the national government and we should just go ahead and ratify it. But uh, one of the things to point out is in some ways, even though, again, the Federalists win the argument, win the day, and they get the ratification of the Constitution without the Bill of Rights, there are these um, maybe behind the scenes deals in which the Federalists are saying um, to the Anti-Federalists, um, you know what, in order to make this happen, let's go ahead and just ratify the thing as it is. But as we meet for the first time in our national government, this will be one of the first things that Congress discusses. And of course, mm -hmm. James Madison ends up being elected to Congress. And so he has sort of the weird position of um, moving a, a Bill of Rights through Congress, even though he was on the side of the Federalists during the debate for ratification. Interesting. Right. So just to say, like, okay, maybe the anti-federalists lose the particular battle with regard to ratification, but the discussion and the debate really is super important because even though the anti-federalists lose, they still are actually probably responsible for what I think most people consider the most cherished portion of the constitution, which is the Bill of Rights, which gets added later. So. Uh, it's okay to lose because you might still make an important contribution through your opposition. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. It's maybe why we should also have our students read, they would hate us if we made them do this, but have them read some Supreme Court cases just to read the dissenting voices so that you can hear the sort of mm. careful argument that goes on as you weigh both sides of a very difficult issue. Well, and this happens all the time with Supreme Court decisions where, uh, you know, you don't have to publish your dissenting opinion, but a lot of Supreme Court um, justices mm -hmm. do this intentionally, knowing that if the issue ends up being um, looked at again in later Supreme Courts, um, they will actually go to the dissenting opinion potentially as the basis for overturning the earlier decision. So. It's very, yeah, it's definitely important to record your dissent so that um, you can be on the record. And, you know, the other thing too is in these awful sometimes Supreme Court decisions, um, and I'm thinking of uh, things that happened during World War II with regard to the Supreme Court upholding the incarceration of Japanese Americans. Yeah. Those dissenting voices then you can go back to and you can clearly see 
Um, like these are the heroes then of American mm -hmm. history. Absolutely. So as we're reading the feds and anti-feds and doing early American formation of our government, are there other you know, books, documentaries, or other or musicals, I suppose, that we could <laughs> we could love to? Well, I can't recommend musicals. I'm, I'm sure. I mean, I know a lot of students already have seen or heard portions of Hamilton, and I'm sure it's great. So, I mean, I've, you know, whatever gets you interested in history, I go for it. That's great. Um, there is, of course, the biography that um, inspired the musical. I, I think that I have actually read the biography. I remember it being a good one. Um, so, Sure. Um, and there's lots of biographies of the founding um, fathers. But um, one of the persons that I will talk about in a little bit later lecture is one of my favorite founding mothers, and that's uh, Abigail Adams. And man, yeah. she she is something. Um, she might be someone worth investigating in terms of looking at a biography or some such, because she is one of the people to point out very early in the discussion, even about independence, like, hey, John, my husband, John, who's going to be the second president of the United States, um, I'm really excited for you to declare independence, but could you maybe think about putting in some kind of protection for the ladies? So her, her key phrase in one of the letters is remember the ladies. And John responds and is like, well, you know, you guys are the real tyrants and you're so funny and saucy, blah, blah. You know, and it's just like, <laughs> okay, okay, John. And maybe she was wearing the pants in the family, so to speak. But um, still, she's bringing up this larger issue of uh, maybe women need to have equal rights. She also is someone who points out the contradiction between being uh, a country based on the principles of equality and freedom, and yet based on an economy that was based on slave labor. She points right. out that paradox as early as 1776. So she's maybe someone to check out as well as yeah. some of those founding fathers. Maybe we she could get a, a musical based on Abigail Adams. That 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 might be one I actually go see. I was going to say, I may lift my, my normal avoidance of <laughs> those things and, and go see it. Yeah, she's kind of a badass. So yeah, I'd, I'd yeah. say, you know, there and, and there are a lot of other people too. I mean, there are lots of people who aren't famous who are writing letters and saying, um, this doesn't go far enough. And uh, those are th those stories are worth looking at as well. I don't, I don't have titles off the top of my head, but there's all sorts of good stuff out there. Mm -hmm. What do you like to read? Um, do you have... I mean, I know this is less your specialty and everything, but you know, I have um, I have some stuff on Thomas Jefferson's Quran. Oh, Ooh, I can't remember the name of the author of that book, but uh, Jefferson thinking very much in terms of a pluralist society, mm -hmm. um, and, and he tended to think about like various religious sects that he wanted to protect. Mm -hmm. um, seem to have thought, <coughs> pardon me, that um, that there would be Muslims in the country in the way that there were various Protestant sects and Catholic groups. And so um, that particular text is very interesting to me. I also um, got the John Adams miniseries, 
which mm-hmm. is neither documentary nor book, but it mm-hmm. is interesting. Right on. Um, I am not hearing. So, oh, you're still there. Okay. Just, this is lovely technology. Um, if you're interested, if you're interested in yeah. Thomas Jefferson, by the way, there are lots of really interesting books about Thomas Jefferson as a very conflicted human being. Um, <laughs> so he's one of these people who seems to have, I mean, he's, he's a Panian in some ways. He's writes the declaration of independence for crying out loud. And yet he owns slaves, and as far as the DNA evidence has revealed, he actually fathered children by one of his slaves, Sally Hemings. And that family story is very interesting right. because Sally Hemings was the half-sister of Thomas Jefferson's first wife. Oh, I don't think I knew that. Yeah. So um, there's there's some great biographies that deal with the complexity of Thomas Jefferson, including, I think, a MacArthur fellow who wrote one. So very interesting. Yeah. Anyway, so speaking of speaking of interesting, what what books are you reading unrelated to uh, early American history? What's on your nightstand right now? What's on my nightstand? Um, You know, this whole like closure of all major libraries is really kind of problematic as far as my nightstand. (laughs) (laughs) So I just had finished um, one book that I, of course, I'm forgetting. Uh, Jessamine is the first name of the author. Carrie, are you familiar with this um, author? Uh, Jessamine. I'm actually typing it in to my computer because I can do that. Uh, it's it's not coming up though at all. Anyway, I I can't think of what the book was, um, but it was like the story about uh, Katrina and the coming of the flood. But it was dealing with a very poor African American family, father Ooh. with four children. It was very interesting. But it, and it definitely felt like it took me into a world I know nothing about. Jessamine Ward, I think, is actually the author's name. Okay. Um, but then I, I, I don't have any new books from the library to read. So I said to my daughter, Lydia, um, what are you reading, sweetheart? And she was like, oh, I'm, I'm deep into the Nancy Drew. And I was like, I like me some Nancy Drew. Nice. So I um, am reading the Ringmaster something by by Carolyn Keene. Uh, <laughs> okay. Very nice. It's been years since I So I am currently working, still working through the Testaments. Very, very good right now by Margaret Atwood. And then, okay, so before all the travel bans went into place, I was actually in Ireland, and mm. I took a a James Joyce tour of Dublin, Mm. which was awesome. And so I am about to start uh, Ulysses because I figure that's a good book to read. It's a tome. And so it seems appropriate for having a ton of time by myself in my house. Can I jump in quick here? (laughs) Sure, sure, Sam. (laughs) I'm all on board with uh, anyone reading Ulysses and 
I'm up for a conversation if you want. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And the book I read was Salvage the Bones. So sorry about the, uh, um, you know, pause oh, on that you found one. It. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, you know, it's going to take me a while to get through Ulysses. I have a feeling, but we should have some conversations about Ulysses. I'm, I'm super pumped about it. I bet that's one of those ones too, that like given the crisis is probably available um, in some kind of electronic form and maybe, maybe I'll read it just so that we can have a conversation with Sam yeah. about it. Cause why not? I'll read it again if, yeah, if you're going to talk about it. So. Okay. Cause you know, bets are off the <laughs> oh, table excellent. right now. That's right. That's right. Who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, no kidding. Um, all right. Well, I think this is our first uh, remote podcast and you've been listening to Bookish at Bethel. Bethel.